0: Mike, give me a beat. What? Just what? No, no. What am I supposed to do with that? Let's try it again. Give me a beat. What's it? All right. Clearly, the beat is not working. I just. How about a nasty groove? Let's try that.
1: Oh, a nasty groove. Why didn't you say so? Will this do? What is wrong with all the DJs around
0: here? We're just gonna have to fire all of you. What? You can't count on anybody. What does a girl gotta do to get a DJ?
1: This is Discord and Ryan. Mm. Ain't I a stinker?
2: Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song. I'm Phil Maddox,
1: here with Mike DeFabio, Rich Bennell.
0: and my name's Amanda, Ms. Rogers,
1: if you're nasty.
2: And our host this week will be Rich. What album do you have for us this week, Rich?
3: Well, as Amanda alluded to, we are going to be covering the album Control by Janet Jackson from 1986.
2: Ah, excellent. Why we decided to go with this album? Well,
3: first off, because if, uh, if you're familiar with my taste in music at all, it is downright flabbergasting that it took us nine whole episodes to cover an album from the greatest decade in pop music history, the 80s. The second reason is because Janet Jackson is an immensely talented artist with a wide, diverse catalog of major hit singles. And yet, this legacy seems to have been stricken completely from the record since the Super Bowl 38 halftime show, uh, which we'll get to in a moment. Now, I witnessed an enormous resurgence in the popularity of Michael Jackson's music after his death. Janet Jackson is thankfully still alive and will hopefully be for a long time. But her career was more or less murdered in cold blood. And I think it's time for Discord and Rhyme to help resurrect it.
2: Excellent. So let's go around the horn and talk about our own, you know, personal histories with Janet Jackson or this album. Let's start with you, Rich. Rich
3: okay so much like the first episode I hosted Earth Wind and Fire um, my personal history of Janet's music is actually pretty recent uh, which doesn't mean that I didn't hear her a lot growing up I, in particular I remember together again and doesn't really matter being really enormous hit singles in my teens uh, especially on Vh1 which is how I absorb most pop music in the late 90s um, but it wasn't really a style of music I really embraced at that point in my life now I didn't start seriously listening to Janet until just last year Uh, when I heard What Have You Done For Me Lately on the Detroit-area throwback hip-hop and R&B station, which, uh, by the way, is an interesting phenomenon. It's like I'm I'm actually seeing, like... um it's basically seeing the Gen X equivalent of classic rock take shape, except it's called throwback hip-hop and R&B. Anyway, I digress. Uh, the song had so much harder of an edge than I remembered, and uh, I decided to check out Control out of curiosity. And um, this is an album that I have known for less than a year, and it's the second album I'm covering for this podcast. Uh, it's coming before many of my favorite bands, and that's how much it hooked me, and I'm really, really excited to discuss it.
2: How about you, Amanda? How far back do you and uh, Miss Jackson go? Oh, me and Janet go way
0: back. I have always loved her singles, you know, from the time they were coming out when I was a kid. And some of my friends had her albums and we would listen to them while we were playing with our Barbies because we were 10. Uh, So you know, I was always quite happy to be part of the Rhythm Nation, but for some reason I just, I stopped hearing her songs on the radio and she just sort of fell out of my life, which is ridiculous. So listening to this album again after so long has been really, really fun for me. And I'm not going to let her fall away from me again.
1: I have pretty much no history with Janet Jackson at all. I mean, uh, I knew some of her hits. Uh, I, that's the way love goes was inescapable in 1993, but I never, I had nothing against her, but I never really checked her music out. And Rich wanted me to be in this episode. So I was fine with that. But, uh, yeah, that's kind
3: of how my episodes go. I kind of just like point to a few people and say, "You, you, you, you're going to yeah. listen to this random album."
1: I was kind of expecting to uh just kind of spend this episode hanging back and cracking wise, but uh it turns out this this is a really a fascinating album. When I started reading about how it was put together and just the sound of the thing is is really interesting to me. And Yeah, this is this is a producer's album. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh it ended up Ended up being pretty uh, exciting to talk about. Can you guys hear my dog barking in the background? I was wondering which dog that was. (laughs) Yeah. It's a callback
2: to the mollusk episode. It's pink eye on my leg. Yeah. Yeah. Just glad it's not my dog. (laughs) As for me, my experience with Janet Jackson is, if anything, even less than Mike's. Like, once again, Rich wanted to do this episode. I was on the list, so I got put on the episode. I had never heard the album. Um, I actually just bought it a couple weeks ago because I was on vacation and I knew this episode was coming up and I found a cheap copy at McKay's Books in Nashville. So a great record store. If you, you know, there's a plug for you. If you live in the Nashville area, go to McKay's. I may have heard some of her other hits at some point, but if I have, I don't know it. I mean, I listened to this and I know there's a bunch of famous songs on this record, but I had not heard any of them until I played this record. Like, you know, first, like a week ago when I started listening to it. So I'm coming into this totally cold. So I've had fun, you know, playing this record over and over again and kind of getting into it. So, Rich, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of uh, Janet Jackson and this album?
3: Uh, I'd like to, but I think it would be a good idea to start with a countdown. What do you guys think? Five,
2: four,
3: three, two, one... So it would be absolutely dishonest to begin any discussion of Janet Jackson with anything at all but 2004's Super Bowl 38 halftime show, which was a pivotal event not only to Jackson's career in that it destroyed it, uh, but to modern media history in that it changed it. You all probably know the story, but maybe some of you are young. I don't know. Uh, Jackson was the headliner of the Super Bowl show. Apparently like Puff Daddy was there and Kid Rock also. It was kind of a weird lineup, but Janet Jackson was the main event. And she performed a medley of her hits that capped off with uh, a surprise appearance by Justin Timberlake, who performed his then hit Rock Your Body. So as part of their act, uh, he tore off a piece of Jackson's breakaway clothing. In the process, accidentally exposing her right breast to an estimated 77 million viewers. So the impact of what I will refer to once and only once as Nipplegate, because I don't like that name, it puts the blame on Jackson, like much of what's happened to her. The impact has been enormous. Um, Janet Jackson became the most searched for name in, in internet history at the time. And the demand for the video was one of the inspirations for the founding of YouTube. So yeah, YouTube happened because of Janet Jackson. But more relevantly to Jackson herself, the resulting coordinated media blackout on her music effectively ended her career, which was surging at the time, like she was getting number one hits left and right. Meanwhile, Justin Timberlake escaped unscathed and in fact soared to new heights of superstardom with his future sex Love Sounds album, which I will admit I like a lot.
2: Right. But I think that like this is probably, you know, why I'm not familiar with a lot of her music, because I didn't listen to a lot of pop music back in like the 90s and early 2000s because I was more of a rock guy. And nowadays, I think a lot of her music just doesn't get played because of this.
3: Yeah, and I think it's not just her music since the, since the Super Bowl. It's, uh, it's basically most of her previous hits, except for a few huge ones. And she did have a lot of huge hits. Uh, Jackson's career up to 2004 was a remarkable success story, a story that ended completely abruptly through absolutely no fault whatsoever of her own. And so with this episode, I want to take us back to the beginning of that story, to 1986's Control, which at once is a confident statement of purpose, a game-changing piece of popular music a flawless set of songs that you might not agree with me on that one Um, and an album absolutely nobody saw coming. It's hard to stress that. It was a mega hit album that like just came out of nowhere. But I'm going to get into a little of Jackson's prior history of which there wasn't much because this is the album that basically broke her. So Janet Demita Jo Jackson did not start off as a singer. She was the actress of the Jackson Collective with previous roles on both Good Times and Fame among other things it was mostly soapy stuff so her father joe jackson eventually arranged a contract for her with a&m records and her, her first two albums her eponymous 1982 debut and 1984's dream street are mostly just forgettable formulaic dance pop and i like forgettable formulaic dance pop but this this stuff isn't particularly good i'm, I'm gonna play a clip for you from a song from dream street called don't stand another chance and you'll you'll see what i mean
0: could just as easily be Debbie Gibson.
3: Yeah, pretty generic. So after those first two albums, while the Jacksons were out on tour for their disastrous victory album, which we probably won't ever cover on this podcast, Janet acted out by eloping with singer James DeBarge at just 18 years old and firing her father as her manager. The marriage didn't last for very long, but her new manager sent her to Minneapolis and recruited producers Jimmy Jam Harris and Terry Lewis, former members of the time and acolytes of the artist then known as Prince. And that's where our story begins. All
2: right. All right. I will now uh, cede control of this podcast remote to Miss Jackson with the first track on this album Control.
4: This is a story about control. My control. Control of what I say, control of what I do. And this time I'm going to do it my way. I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. Are we ready? I am, because it's all about control, and I've got lots of it.
3: Yeah, so that that intro right there is a lot like um it seems very much influenced by let's go crazy by prince but janet does her own sort of spin on it i would say like the speaking it in a monotone like over this really eerie synth became kind of a janet jackson trademark especially on the rhythm nation album
4: when I, was I did what people told me uh, i did what my father
0: long ago she means like two years
3: (laughs) her her frame of reference Uh, that's her whole life she doesn't even remember like six years of that (laughs) yeah Okay, so Control, the title track, was the fourth single from the album, and there were a lot of singles from this album, so you get used to this. This hit number five on the Hot 100 and topped both the Dance Club songs and Hot R&B hip-hop songs charts. And um, by the way, I, before I go into the song, I think the Dance Club songs chart is really interesting, because if you look at it, the number one song changes every week Uh, like dance clubs have a really short attention span as far as like the big hit is concerned Uh, whereas like things can like you know conquer the hot 100 for like half the year anyway as for the song itself i promise this episode is going to focus on janet jackson primarily but you can't talk about this album without talking about producers jam and lewis two men who somehow still manage not to look douchey in fedoras So Jam and Lewis started out as part of Prince's protege band at the time, uh, but they angered the purple one when they were in Atlanta for a production gig and a snowstorm caused them to miss a time gig in San Antonio. And you do not piss off Prince. So Prince fined and fired them and the duo suddenly had nothing but free time and a lot of cool gear sitting around. One thing that they also had, and that's especially apparent on this track, is a truly unique personal style of working with recording artists. And this is where they really struck gold on this album. So what happened is that during the day, they would just go to movies with Janet Jackson and hang out with her at any number of like Minnesota's bazillion lakes uh, to get to know her. And um, in today's celebrity culture, this might sound like you know somewhat exploitative and artificial, but it has to be stressed that these were three not- particularly famous people. And the Jamin Lewis uh, slash Janet Jackson friendship and partnership continues literally to this day. They're still friends. And so in these conversations, Janet finally got to talk about exactly what she was actually feeling and just let loose with her anxieties. Chief among which was that as the youngest and most sheltered Jackson, she had literally no control over her life. So Jam, Lewis, and Jackson shaped these conversations into what became most of the lyrics on Control. And the title track is basically the mission statement for everything that Jackson wanted out of her life and career. And I think it's cool that that it refers directly to her father, Joe Jackson, uh, which was pretty brave. Like, imagine if this album had flopped and she'd released, like, a song that called him out and she had to go home to him. And finally, musically, it's amazing. Uh, I'm just going to say this about every track, so get used to it. Even the ballads. So the entire first half of Control is where Jam and Lewis like crammed all of the album's really hard, borderline industrial beats, and uh, the song sort of feels like kind of like a sleek, slightly aged middle roller coaster to me in a way. But we'll talk more about the specifics of the Jam and Lewis production style in later tracks. And I, at this point, I really want to let my co-host get a word in.
2: So the thing that really like jumped out at me about this song is that for you know a dance pop song just how intensely personal the lyrics are, they are very much about her and her life, about, you know, being controlled by her family when she was 17, like, and now she's on her own and she's calling out her dad. It's a level of, like, true, like, soul-bearing you don't often see in this kind of music, and that's pretty unusual, and I think it, you know, aids it because it's all genuine. Again, as far as the music goes, like, like you said, this is a fantastic song. The beats with it, like, Again, they're almost, like, quasi-industrial here, and they've got, like, you know, a very obviously, like, synthesized bass. Like, the, most of the instruments on this album are synthesized, but, like, it's all very produced and well put together, and the whole thing just completely jams. Like, this is an A-plus song.
3: But does it Lewis?
2: It also Lewis's.
3: <laughs> That's the only time I get to make that joke this whole episode, and believe me, I'm gonna want to.
2: You get one.
0: I love how she starts the album with a thesis statement. It's like Cecil B. DeMille at the beginning of the 10 commandments when he comes out and tells you what you're supposed to get out of the movie. So (laughs) she is, she's not taking any chances. This is what she wants all of us to understand from this album. And part of the reason I love it, I don't, I do not mean to detract from what she was doing here, but it is such a rebellious teenager thing to say. Oh yeah. And to be fair, she had, more to rebel against than a lot of kids do. And she busted out a lot more dramatically than most kids do. Um, But I just, I I think it's kind of adorable how she talks about how when she was 17, she used to let people control her, but now she's controlling herself. And she was all in 19 when she was recording this. So that's just, I really enjoy that because she's still very much a teenager here, but she's a teenager who's making really awesome music.
2: I think a lot of people could relate to this one because even though the lyrics are very specifically about her, like, what 19-year-old doesn't, like, relate to, like, you know, people told me what to do when I was 17, but now I'm on my own, and screw you, dad. (laughs) Like, what teenager doesn't relate to that? Exactly. It's part of, you know, people always say, like, a lot of times in the lyrics, the more specific you get, the more universal it ends up being Mm -hmm. because people can relate to the direct experiences, and I think that's very true here. Absolutely.
1: i had never heard this song this was Most of this album actually I had never heard Until a couple of months ago And what struck me about it Is that every single sound In this song Is like it has a, a neon sign Attached to it that just says 1986 In huge <laughs> letters But the way the song is put together It's aged a lot Better than you would think For a song made With the sort of sonic palette It was made with all these sounds are bouncing across the stereo field. There's Every little percussion hit gets its own kind of space in the mix. It's very interesting to listen to.
3: Yeah, and a, lot, and a lot of it is analog Like uh, this this album sort of sits at an Interesting crossroads, but I, I'm planning to Discuss that in a later track um, yeah. a- Anyway, before we move on to the next track uh, So I don't want to take up all the air in the room So uh, Amanda, <clears throat> excuse me Miss Rogers Thank you. <laughs> Is going to be the designated co-host to talk about Janet Jackson's videos for this album Which are very well worth talking about
0: So yeah, Janet Jackson's videos, I remember these uh, Pretty clearly from when I was a kid We didn't have cable at home, but our babysitter At the time did, and we were constantly watching MTV and everybody would just stop whatever we were doing whenever a Janet video came on because they're all so good. Um, and this one, this one's pretty basic. It starts out with a little mini movie um, that's it, basically the same as the little monologue at the beginning. Her mother's telling her, come home early for dinner. And she's saying, no, no, I have a sound check. I'll just eat after the show. And then she goes and performs her song. Uh, one little thing that caught me was she's wearing a giant hoop earring with a house key attached to it. And I saw that and I thought, oh yeah, I remember that being a thing that she did in a lot of the images of her around that time. And so I thought, what's that all about? And I looked it up and then I kind of wished I hadn't because it turns out when she was a kid, she and Michael were in charge of the Jackson family menagerie and they had to go out to take care of the animals. And she started keeping the key to the cages on her earring just to have it handy and that kind of turned into a fashion statement and it is a very cool little bit of a fashion statement but the origin story is a little sad the
3: jackson family menagerie whenever i read about it it makes me so so sad yeah. like I, there was i read an interview with janet jackson where she was saying like a, someone asked her like oh do you have a zoo in your backyard and she says like no it's not really a zoo they're just in cages like oh. i'm like oh my
2: god it's terrible
0: okay now that i've bummed everybody out
2: All right, with that out of the way, I hope everybody at home is ready to get nasty. Oh, yeah. Give me a beak!
3: 60. Ah, oh, what a song. Uh, so that was the second single from the album. This song hit number three on the Hot 100. I don't know what songs hit number two and number one, but I hope that they feel good about themselves. It also hit number two on the dance charts and number one on R&B and hip-hop. This song originated from a night when Jam and Lewis went with uh, Jackson to a club. So some guys started creeping on her, and the two of them decided to hang back and let her figure out how to defuse the situation on her own. Which, in 2018, that does sound like, you know, not the best approach, but they were keeping watch in case the guys started anything. Anyway, Janet came back and said, "Uh, Those guys were saying nasty things to me. I don't like nasty boys. And their response? Great, let's turn it into a song! Hence, that's where nasty comes from. So in coaching Jackson's vocal delivery for this song, um, Jam and Lewis aimed to bring out what they saw as the raw aggressiveness of hip hop, uh, which was still basically an exclusively male genre at this time, and still largely is, but especially was in the 80s. And uh, it definitely worked. Like, this song is almost nothing but iconic moments, and a lot of that rests on her vocal performance. And uh, the most iconic moment is this one right here.
4: is my name, my last name is control. No, my first name ain't baby. It's Janet, Miss Jackson, if you nasty.
3: So Janet's last name is control, but her name is Miss Jackson only if you're nasty. So I guess she has conditional last names. So, Phil, how would you express that in code? Like, if, I guess. if nasty, then,
2: like... <laughs> if self.type equals nasty, then set last name equals Jackson... Else, set last name equals control.
3: Awesome! I'm glad we finally have that set in the stone. So we have some nasty code for you. The only other thing I have to say is that, in what has already become a recurring theme on this podcast, I first learned about this song from Weird Al's polka rendition on his polka party medley. Being parodied by Weird Al as a signed musician has made it, but being included on a polka medley is at least an honorable mention, since there's only so much space on an album.
2: Nasty, nasty boys. Nasty boys, don't ever change. Oh, you nasty boys.
0: I like this part. He says, don't ever change like it's a good thing, like you're writing somebody's (laughs) yearbook. Don't ever change. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ever stop being
1: nasty. Exactly.
3: By the way, I listened to that polka party medley a million times as a kid, but as an adult listening to it, I appreciate how Weird Al's band replicates, as polka, both the orchestral hits in the song. And the beat. <laughs> like, like it's amazing. I, I don't know. God, Weird Al is the greatest genius in musical history. Uh, so what do the rest of you think about Nasty?
1: Uh, that beat sounds like a dinosaur stomping on a car. That's probably harder than what Ministry were doing at the time. It's the most aggressive sound, and there's almost nothing else to the song. You've got sampled orchestral hits used as a lead instrument, and... That plus Janet's vocals, that's really all there is to the song. It's all percussion. It's just hitting all the time. I was very impressed by this song.
3: Yeah, that's one thing I wanted to mention about the. So no, I knew this song first through that Weird Al version, and like my reaction was, like, how does the song sound like that? Like, how does the real song have that melody? And it turns out that, you know, Jam and Lewis are just a lot more creative than I
1: am. <laughs> But this, this song, I mean, when I first heard it, it almost reminded me of like early Autecker. If any of you out there know Autecker, it's. Yeah. It, it doesn't. Uh, I mean, it doesn't sound like any Autecker song in particular to me, but it makes me think they must have been fans of this album.
2: Right. Or I thought like there's some stuff from like early KMFDM albums that doesn't sound far removed from like the rhythm in this, which. Those are not comparisons that you would normally think to make between like Janet Jackson and like early industrial music. But it's definitely
1: there. That that early 90s wax track sound.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: And I was actually thinking earlier that you could even draw a straight line from Janet Jackson to Nine Inch Nails. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of stuff, especially on Rhythm Nation, that sounds a lot like the downward spiral.
1: Yeah. Just before this episode, we were listening to uh, Miss You Much, and it's got that creepy Trent Reznor drone in the background in the beginning.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right. What's your what's your take on this one, Amanda? The
0: song rules. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I, mean, <laughs> Fair. I
0: mean, that the riff is amazing. The lyrics are fantastic, even though there's not very many of them. They're really well put together. And that is one hell of a vocal performance. I mean, her voice at this point wasn't really that strong, uh, which is a valid criticism to make of the album. But that is not a weakness here. She sells this really, really powerfully. And I also really enjoy those little asides throughout where she says, I could learn to like this, or I like this part. And she says, I like this part right before my favorite part of the song where she just loses her temper and starts yelling. (laughs) I also really enjoy learning that her full name is actually Janet privacy control, (laughs) but you can call her Ms. Jackson. (laughs) And also just the overall construction of the song. It's not very, except for that beat, which is rock solid through the whole thing. It's not very consistent. It just kind of goes all over the place. And there's little variations on the theme throughout. And it, just, it kind of sounds like it's all over the place, but everything is very careful and very deliberate. It all just, I mean, put together, it, this song is freaking amazing, you guys. It's by
2: far my favorite one on this album. Oh yeah, definitely. It's my favorite song on this album too. It's not even close. It's definitely the best song ever written about professional wrestlers, Brian Nobbs and Jerry Sags. <laughs>
3: I agree. What?
2: <laughs> all the late 80s, early 90s, like, WWF fans that we have in our listener base will recognize them as the Nasty Boys. The,
0: all three of
3: them. Yeah.
2: Oh, you think there's three? That's... You're being very generous <laughs> with three.
3: Well, there's three, but we have, like, four listeners, so, like, <laughs> that, it's a very sizable part of our demographic.
2: But but one thing about this... The, the way the the lyrics are, you know, obviously condemning like nast those nasty boys. But the way the song is, but it's kinda got almost kind of a hard, like kind of a nasty groove, as Janet says at one point in the song. If you're not paying too close to the attention if you're not paying too close attention to the lyrics, the song kinda sounds like it could very easily be pro nastiness, even though it's decidedly anti nasty. But Oh, yeah, it's great. That beat is like, you know, I really like early, like, industrial music. And this kind of caught me off guard when I heard it. Because again, I hadn't heard this before. It caught me off guard with how much it resembled a lot of like, you know, mid 80s, late 90s, like wax track style industrial music. But yeah, everybody else covered it pretty well. But this is just this is my favorite song on the record by a lot.
3: Yeah, Phil, when I asked you to do to cover this album with me, I wasn't sure if you'd be into it. I'm glad that it found a way into your heart through your industrial fandom. Yes. Let's hear about the video, though. This one has quite a video.
0: The video is so cool. So the sequence at the beginning, she goes to the movies and sits down, and she's surrounded by nasty boys being nasty. And she loses her temper and yells, stop! And then goes up to the front and yells, give me a beat! As we heard earlier. And then, you know, somehow the guys in the movie are kind of dancing with her. It's a really cool visual effect. Uh, But that whole sequence has become... Just such a pop culture moment to the point where if anybody out there is familiar with the cartoonist Kate Beaton, she did a wonderful strip based on that opening sequence that turns into exceedingly silly film noir about what happens to the nasty boys and they they go to St Jude's Home for the Nasty. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm going to link to this in the show notes. It's spectacular. Yeah, I love Kate. I love um, Kate Beaton and this uh, this comic is well worth reading to the very end. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So the dancing is really, really cool throughout this. It was choreographed by Paula Abdul, who was then largely unknown. She was a very well-regarded choreographer, but had not launched her singing career yet. Um, But clearly she was very good at what she did. She also shows up as one of the women in the movie theater. And this is, of all the videos from this album, this is the one with the best dancing in it. In my opinion, a lot of people disagree, but... We'll get to that later. Uh, What I really love about this one, though, is she was really great at using her hair as an accessory in her dance routines. And I love how she flips it around. It's just it's really, really effective. And she's so good at it. So this is just mesmerizing to watch. I highly recommend, you know, get thee to YouTube and watch all of Janet Jackson's videos. Yeah. And the later ones are even better. Oh, yeah.
2: All right. So rich. I know, like, you founded this podcast, and I definitely appreciate that, but that's been a while ago, so I guess the question I have for you is, what have you done for me lately? I got you that Danish. And I'll never forget it.
4: What's up, girl? He stood me up again. Again? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, what's up with this guy? Do you really like him that much? Yes, honey, I love him. He is fine. He does a lot of nice things for me. I know he used to do nice stuff for you, but what has he done for you lately? Thank you.
3: Good question. So this was the first single from the album. Uh, it hit number four on the Hot 100, number two, dance, number one, R&B slash hip-hop. So uh, this is another personal song. It was inspired by Jackson's whirlwind marriage to James DeBarge, uh, not to be confused with L DeBarge. Uh, so in researching this episode, I finally learned the difference between all the DeBarges. Like, there was there was the band DeBarge, and the singer was L DeBarge, but James DeBarge was a different DeBarge.
2: I just thought it was the thing you parked at DePort. So,
3: anyway, based on the lyrics to the song, to quote Faye Miller from Mad Men, it sounds like James DeBarge only liked the beginnings of things. Very nice. So I love the arrangement on this song. Like, everything is so monotone, so flat, so just perpendicular so purely rhythmic that like you know the little bursts of melody hit you like that car from the title track so this is especially noticeable on the bridge uh, which is just a, a lovely little like key change like island of a melody and what is otherwise a very cold and mechanical song in a good way
2: this one's another one that is pretty dang great. Like it's a good place to point out, like one thing of these early songs, like on this, the first several songs on this album have a very strong, like emphasis on the second beat in each measure. It's very that, you know, hits very hard and is very effective on all of these songs. This one's just got a great, like, you know, synth bass line, like a really like driving, like drum beat, really rhythmic, Not quite to the level of like being rap or anything, but very rhythmic kind of vocals that go with it. that really drive the whole thing forward, like a great hook in the chorus. The way she sings, you know, what have you done for me lately? So far, we're three for three on the songs on this album being great.
0: It's yeah, it's great. And I I had a really fun moment the first time I was listening to this getting ready for this podcast. The, the first songs, I remembered them, and I hadn't heard them for a while. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember the song. And then it launched into the dialogue at the beginning of this one. And I had one. I just, it slammed me right back to, like, age nine. You know, I had forgotten all about this, and it was one of those fabulous, oh, yeah, this, I love this kind of things. I enjoy that her friend, he has to point out to her that her boyfriend has not actually been all that great recently and she's like oh crap you're right and then sings a whole song about it <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's like a musical
0: yeah exactly exactly and
3: i don't want to i don't want to intrude on your uh video observations but one thing i have noticed about a lot of janet jackson videos is that they're all basically west side story yeah or at least two-thirds of them are
0: that's a pretty common theme yeah yep um and also the chorus, I enjoy this, is in perfect iambic tetrameter <laughs> to emphasize the operative words. What have you done for me lately? You know, she's she means business and the rhythm and the way they fit the words to it do a wonderful job of emphasizing that. This is just, I don't have anything super duper smart to say about this song. It's just really good.
2: I mean, it's like, it's, you know, just real hard hitting dance music, which it's hard to find a ton to say about this because this is really just, you know... It's dance music. It's music that's not intended for you to think about, per se. It's supposed to, like, you know, get you on the floor. This music, you know, does it real well because it hits so hard. It hits a lot harder than I would expect, like, from a Janet Jackson album, just from, you know... Again, I knew very little about her. I just kind of assumed she was, like, you know, standard, like, 80s pop. But, like, a lot of the beats and stuff on this record hit a lot harder than I was expecting,
3: yeah, and I never noticed that iambic tetrameter thing. Like, that, that's a really interesting way to make such an unwieldy title into a catchy
1: chorus. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: All right, so, Mike, what's your take here?
1: Ah, uh, well, one thing I'd like to point out is that if if you happen to own a, a big fancy keyboard with a lot of presets on it, or you have a friend who does and lets you play around on it, uh, you might have noticed it's likely that it has a, a setting on it called Lightly Bass. <laughs> and that's, that's because... Uh, I did
3: notice that!
1: <laughs> that's yeah but by you I, I mostly mean me uh that's the synth bass sound from this song it's so it's such a singular bass sound that it's it's got its own uh keyboard preset named after it and it's a it's a really great synth bass sound I'm I'm not always fond of the synth bass but it's when it's done well uh it's it's a great sound uh. Ugh. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, you just, uh. well, I mean, this song, it's like Phil was saying, it's like, it's, music like this is meant for, it's meant to create a visceral reaction, and that's, that's what it does. It's a sound that just hits you in the gut. But also, uh, like Rich was mentioning, the, the very robotic, monotone nature of this song, it's, it is that, but it also manages to somehow get funky in a way that only machines can if that makes sense. Yeah.
2: Like, it doesn't sound funky like, you know, the Ohio Players or whatever, but it's right. almost it's almost like kraftwerk
1: Yeah, and Kraftwerk were, in their own uh, very German way, pretty funky.
2: Yeah. This is
1: the kind of music that
3: robots actually dance to. Like, you know, when humans do the robot, it's actually just like a pale imitation
1: of this type of dancing. <laughs> the other thing I, I don't want to leave out is... Uh, I just want to mention uh, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings' wonderful cover of this song that takes it from 1986 straight to 1968.
3: I did not know that existed. Well wow, my You didn't? You were you, you you going to have to put a clip of that in post-production. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we require a clip. And it's going to go right here. uh, I forgot to mention is that this song has like a for a while there's this like jazz piano going on in the background, which is really cool. Like something that you wouldn't expect to hear in a song like this. Um the song also has a
0: video, as you would expect. It does. This is a great music video, and the true star of this video is a gentleman whom pop culture would come to know as Mr. Heckles. (laughs) At this point in his life, he is a simple fry cook, but already showing signs of the chronic grouchiness that would come to define his character. At some point after this, he moved into an apartment in Greenwich Village right below two women who constantly tormented him by stomping around their apartment constantly. Fed up with the situation, he later faked his own death and moved to Albuquerque, where he found a position running a scrapyard and conducted important experiments in electromagnetism. Wow, going really hard with the AMC references this episode. (laughs) Yeah. But more seriously, this is another beautifully choreographed dance video, and Mr. Heckles is in it. I forgot to write down the name of the actor I really should have. I think it was Cary Grant. <laughs> yeah, Cary mm-hmm. Grant. Mm-hmm. So Janet and her friend are sitting at a diner, and her friend points out that her boyfriend kind of sucks, and then it turns into a dance-off between Janet and her friends and all the boys in the diner, one of whom appears to be her boyfriend, and Mr. Heckles is glaring at them from behind the counter the whole time. And eventually, everybody else clears out. It's just Janet and her guy, who seem to be having a good time by this point, but at the very end, she turns to the camera And says, This is wild, I swear. And she looks pretty angry. So I kind of doubt this relationship is going to last very much longer. I need a sequel.
2: Maybe we'll get one. Maybe. (laughs) Anyway, let's move on to the next track on this album Track Four You Can Be Mine.
3: Shocking twist, this song was not a single. I promise it's going to be okay, everyone. We'll get back to the singles very soon. So uh, one interesting thing is that this, uh, this song picks up right at the end of the previous track at the same BPM. Or Am I right there, Mike? It's the same as What Have You Done For Me Lately. Right?
1: It's, I mean, I haven't tried to match them or anything, but it's pretty close. It's close.
3: Yeah, which is, it's a cool effect. And so, like, uh, it, that's, I think that's because What Have You Done For Me Lately actually originated as a fragment created during the sessions for this song, which was supposed to be the last song that they finished. Like, during the sessions, they just started playing that synth bass loop from What Have You Done For Me Lately, and they decided to turn it into one of the best songs on the album. Um, as for this song itself, uh, I want to let Mike talk about the production details on this album, but there is one thing that I really do love about this album's production that's especially apparent on this song. Uh, so basically, Control like sits on the precipice between like analog recording techniques and digital ones in a really interesting way. And a lot of the gear on this album was completely digital, but they recorded it to analog tape. Now, when you record digital elements at really, really high volume to actual physical tape, it creates distortion. Uh, And this is a trick that Jamin Lewis learned from Prince. Uh, You can hear this all over his his albums. Anyway, so this is what is partially responsible for Control's uh, distinctive sound. And honestly, uh, part of why I love the album so much. And I just wanted to play one clip of the bridge real quick, which I also love. (laughs) 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 Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> What's in the middle? The white yeah, okay. I've turned this into a Weird all podcast again. <laughs> I have to admit, that is the only reason I included that clip. Why don't the rest of you take it away?
0: <laughs> all right. Uh, this is the first song on the album that I'm really not that crazy about. Yeah, the vocal hook, just it, it just gets on my nerves, the way it's performed. Although I do appreciate how the, her whole vocal track is doubled by at least one instrument slash synth component, and they blend it somehow really, really well. The rest of it, I mean, it's very well written and produced, and the beat is really great, but it just, it doesn't really do much for me, and part of it is because there is just not nearly enough bass in here. It's just, it's too trebly, and it's just, it feels overbalanced to me. Except for that rock and guitar solo, which sounds very Princey. Me, you guys know a lot more about Prince than I do. So maybe I'm totally off base here, but that's what it reminds me of. And the song is way too long.
3: I mean, with two members, well, I mean, three members of the time on this album, there's, they were trained by Prince. Like there's, there's no
1: question here. Yeah. I noticed the, the princiness in the, in the guitar solo on this song and also on uh, the Pleasure Principle. This is also for me, a, it's a, it's a bit of a dip in the album. I don't, I don't dislike the song at all. It's just, uh, I could tell it's an album track after those first 3 it's it just doesn't uh, it's a lot less uh focused primarily on rhythm than those first 3 tracks they they i guess they had to to introduce some melodic elements at some point in the album uh so you've got all these <laughs> melody i know it's for suckers uh you've got all these synth horns and things this might be an interesting time since i don't have much else to say about the song to mention all the cool gear they were using there is so much <laughs> The uh, Well, the, the three main uh, instruments they're using, the thing that they're using to make all these uh, orchestral hits and things, uh, that's that's a sampling keyboard called an eSonic Mirage. And I uh, initially thought they were using a Fairlight, but Fairlights were very expensive in those days. You could only use those if you were New Order or Kate Bush or somebody. And I'm going to throw in this little anecdote because I don't know when we're going to get to do a New Order episode, and I have to get it out. But when New Order first acquired a Fairlight, you know what the first thing they did was? They sampled a fart. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: what else would you do with that? So
2: the first thing that everybody does when they get a keyboard. Yeah. Yeah.
3: We should mention that again when the New Order episode eventually happens. Oh, yeah. it's just, It might
1: not be for a while. So It's
2: what uh, New Order and Gene Belcher have in common. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to sample it. <laughs> uh, the, the drum machine they're using for this album, they had mostly been using a uh, DMX drum machines for for most of their productions. They wanted something different for Janet Jackson, so they used uh, a Linn drum machine, which is what you hear all over Prince's albums. Uh, but they used, uh, they customized it. You could actually, because, you know, th- these are analog machines, you could open them up and change components and, and things. So they'd put their own custom sound cards into this, uh, this drum machine. So that's where a lot of the percussion sounds are coming from. So it was
0: from. like a Mellotron.
1: Sort of. Yeah. Except yeah, except yeah. You know, instead of using tapes, they were using you know, whatever analog drum machines were made out of. I've never gotten to touch one. And then I think the main keyboard that they used was a Yamaha DX7, which was the sound of the '80s. It's where you hear that that awful uh, twinkly electric piano sound that was in every. Adult Contemporary Ballad. I actually attended a, a, a lecture by the guy who designed a lot of the sounds for the DX7. He, he personally said I should be crucified for ever inventing that sound. Uh, <laughs> but it's you know that that synth brass sound that's in Africa by Toto, which is everybody's favorite song now for some reason. Oh, that uh, one. Okay, now yeah, I mm-hmm. yeah. and that particularly springy synth based sound that you'll hear a little bit later on this album. But that's that's really the three main pieces of equipment they're using in addition to lots of lots of digital reverb boxes and things like that and this one does not have a video
3: because
1: it wasn't a single
2: (laughs) i don't have a whole lot to say about this one that you guys haven't already covered thoroughly well it's not as good as the first three it's still good like it's more melodic than the first three but i think i like this album best when it's you know just being rhythmic so i like the hook of you can be mine in the chorus but yeah, like it's it's an album track. It's a good one. After the first three songs, it's a little bit of a come down, but that's not a slam. I still think it's a real good song. And on that note, let's move on to track five, The Pleasure Principle.
3: The entire album by Gary Newman? Yes. It's okay everyone, we're back to singles. Uh, This was the sixth single from the album. Uh, There were a lot of singles, uh, as I said before. This hit number 14 on the charts, but it topped both the R&B and dance charts because it is a banger. So side two is where control lightens up a lot, uh, because side one's more abrasive industrial beats are replaced by like, you know, sunnier, lighter pop songs. And I'm sorry about that, Phil. Um, but there are still some interesting production flourishes
1: on it.
2: Now, I like everything grim and dark at all times.
1: That, that's my Norwegian black metal sound. You're welcome.
3: Okay, so we got a little bit of that in there. So this song was actually not a product of the Jam slash Lewis slash Jackson songwriting process. It was instead written and produced by time keyboardist Monte Moir. Um, so and for that reason, the lyrics are pretty universal observations that draw on like Sigmund Freud and are completely unrelated to Jackson's personal history. Like she didn't have a Freud period or anything like that. Uh, this is completely like, you know, external to her inner life. So I don't have much to say about the instrumental on the song, honestly, which is very much in the vein of a lot of um, pop music that was popular in the mid 80s, especially stuff like, you know, Lisa Lisa and the cult jam, but like like without the Latin influences. This is just your basic synth pop that you would hear on the radio in 1986. Um, I like it a lot, but the most distinctive thing about it is the electric guitar solo, like on the previous track.
2: I really like the bass on this. The bass is just moving constantly. It's got that, you know, distinctive, I like to call it Sega Genesis funk. Yeah. (laughs) Where it's got that very distinct sound that if you ever played, like, old, like, Sega Genesis games, it always had this kind of synthesizer bass thing that sounds a whole lot like what you're hearing on this song. And it gave all those Sega Genesis games kind of a distinctly funky feel to them.
3: Yeah, the second half of this album is a lot more Sega y (laughs) in general than the first half.
2: Sega! So this one is, um, I don't have a ton to say about it. It's just a real catchy dance track. Like, Better than, you know, uh, the last song, but I don't like as much as the first three, because this record, in my opinion, is like front loaded with the three best songs on it. But like this one's a real solid, like, you know, catchy dance number and just that constantly moving baseline, the way Janet Jackson's voice kind of like circles around it. Like it's real catchy and it keeps me moving the whole time.
1: Like I think most of you, I don't have a lot to say about it, but it's a really fun arrangement they do a really good job of uh, using, like I mentioned before, like using all these uh, very 1986 elements in a way that's really uh, engaging and fun and doesn't draw attention to its uh, 80s-ness. I enjoy it. And it's got another of those uh, very sort of candy apple red guitar solos near the end.
2: All right, I'll kick it over now to um, Amanda, Privacy Control. <clears throat> Who? Miss Rogers. Thank Sorry. you.
0: <laughs> so, Okay. I make a lot of jokes about being an elderly crone, but here I'm being very serious here when I, kids these days in their slang, I have to admit that I don't totally know what is a banger. And oh. <laughs> I thought about that when you said this was rich, cause I, I, I wouldn't have thought that cause I just don't hear a whole lot of banging.
3: Oh, no, so a banger doesn't mean, like, it's a song one bangs to. I think of it, like, as a—well, as as an older millennial, like the rest of you, (laughs) I think of it as a song I would go running to, because I'm an older millennial trying to, like, prevent my body from decaying (laughs) by running.
2: I thought it referred to a song that Van Morrison recorded during his contract sessions for Bang Records.
1: (laughs) It also refers to a (laughs) sausage. Yes. A banger is simply a song that slaps in the whip. (laughs) <laughs> it's as simple as that.
0: Okay. <laughs> so this song to me, though, is less banger and more mash. It. I don't, I don't know. I just find it kind of mushy and boring. And there's clearly something going on that I'm just not picking up on because the whole world seems to love it. And I just don't, I don't, I find it kind of dull and I can't I can remember how the chorus goes with where she says you know the pleasure principle and I have no idea how the rest of the song goes and I've listened to it about 75 times in the last week but the video is a different story <laughs> and I'm apparently just here to talk about the videos so here we go it was directed by Dominic Sena Cena Sena I don't know how to say that Uh, who directed quite a few music videos around this time for a whole bunch of different people, including several for the songs on Rhythm Nation, which came after this, and more recently the film Gone in 60 Seconds. If any of you have seen that, I have not. Uh, The choreographer for this one was Barry either Lather or Lather. I don't know how to say anybody's names. He was a dancer in the videos for Nasty and When I Think of You, both of which were choreographed by Paula Abdul. So these two guys, combined with Janet Jackson, made for a video that left a huge impression on pop culture. Everybody loves it. It gets talked about all the time as one of her best. It was nominated for Best Female Video at the 1988 MTV Video Music Awards, and it won for Best Choreography. The video itself is pretty simple. Janet walks into an empty warehouse to practice a dance routine, but it is an amazing dance routine, and it's just mesmerizing to watch. And a lot of it at this point in her career, looks very Michael Jackson-influenced, and her moves aren't quite as sharp as they would get later on, but she still wipes up the floor with most other dancers. One thing I thought was really neat is the way it's edited makes it look like there's a body double in some parts, but it's all her, including the backflip. She worked incredibly hard on that video, and you can see the evidence. There's one very brief scene where you can see a bandage over a fresh cut on her hand. Apparently, the bit with the chair was especially difficult to get right unsurprisingly and she she did herself some damage while she was doing this she worked incredibly hard on this and it really pays off it's a cool video
3: yeah i love it it's like one of the um it's one of the primordial like you know person dances in a
0: warehouse 80s video yeah this is like what footloose wanted to be
2: see i need to watch these because i haven't actually watched any of these videos i've just listened to the album
0: the ones from control
3: aren't her best videos the rhythm nation ones are pretty Mm -hmm. great though but uh they're definitely worth seeing
2: wasn't that like a POD thing? We are, we are. Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation. That was dumb. All right, let's ignore the incredibly stupid thing I just said and instead think about the next track on this record, When I Think of You.
3: Well, now we have to include that, Phil.
2: Oh, I assumed it was getting included. <laughs>
3: When I Think of You, Janet Jackson's contribution to the Sonic the Hedgehog soundtrack. And that's my one video game reference this episode. So this was the third single from the album, and actually the only one to top the Hot 100. This was her first number one hit, the first of many, but the only one from this album. It also topped the dance charts, and it hit number three on the R&B slash hip-hop charts. Um, And uh, so one funny thing, the album was played in advance for the rest of the Jackson family, except Michael, who was off being famous, I guess. And they singled this song out as the hit. Uh, So, you know, they knew what they were talking about. Though, despite the song's contemporary success, I would say it hasn't endured the way, like, say, Nasty has. But again, um, that's not entirely Janet Jackson's fault. In fact, I would say it's not her fault at all. Um, But it's still probably my favorite song on the album. Like, I just, I'm way into this kind of, like, you know bouncy video game sounding stuff like it's just so happy Um, the chime at the beginning of the song like picks up really beautifully in particular from the end of the pleasure principle uh, which I I wanted to get one thing out of the way this album is ridiculously well sequenced it's one of the best sequenced albums I can think of there's just such, such a great flow to it and the other thing I wanted to mention, uh, we've mentioned orchestral hits a few times, and this is probably a good time to talk about them, because this song is just slathered in them. Uh, and we should probably define them, huh? Like, uh, so, so, Mike, what what exactly is an orchestral hit? Like, uh, it's it's an orchestra playing one note at the same time, essentially, right? Like-
1: yeah, it's just a sample of an orchestra playing a big, loud note, or maybe a chord. Uh, the, the most famous one, the one that got used a lot... Was taken from uh, Stravinsky's Firebird Suite at the beginning of uh, the Infernal Dance. It's just got this. I love
3: that orchestral hits come from Stravinsky. <laughs> yeah,
1: of course it's Stravinsky, right? But that's at the beginning of of the Infernal Dance section of the Firebird Suite. There's this big, loud, shrieking chord, and that's that's what popped up in a lot of in a lot of dance music.
3: Listeners at home, if you're confused, we're going to put a clip here of the bridge from Yes's Owner of a Lonely Heart, which is just a mountain of orchestral hits. And it rules.
1: I should also include a clip there of Cool is Back by Funk Incorporated, which is where that hit comes from.
2: Fun fact, the fact that all the orchestral hits came from Stravinsky is why the first time somebody used an orchestral hit, the audience immediately burned Paris down. This joke is for John, who is not on this episode.
3: (laughs) But he's listening. We love you, John.
2: But uh, most of what I remember from this song, which it's a good song. I mean, I, again, I still love the first three songs the most, but what I mostly remember about this one is that bass line.
3: I just wanted to harmonize with you, Phil.
2: Yes, thank you. I appreciate it. But it's a real catchy little bass line, and then, you know, you get the you know nice counterpoint with the horns and everything. It's, it's a catchy, good pop song. Not like, you know my all-time favorite kind of music or anything, but like this one's catchy and I like it, but I don't have a ton to say about it other than it's catchy and it's fun. How about you, Amanda? I. This is a
0: great song. And I was complaining earlier about not enough bass. That is not a problem here. That bass line is amazing. It's a great way to start off the song. This is probably my second favorite on the album after Nasty. Um And it's also, it, it's just a nice change of tone from the prior hits. It's nice to have a happy one instead of an angry one. You know, it's, this isn't a change like in the album as a whole, but of the singles, I think this is the most cheerful song that came out on the radio. And Rich, I think you're right that it hasn't lasted as long as nasty, like in the public consciousness, but still, as soon as I saw the title of the song, I could sing it to myself. I remembered exactly how it went. It's, I
3: have to admit, I somehow went my whole life up to hearing Control without hearing this famous song. Oh, really? That that, that might be my bad. My wife has absolutely heard it.
0: Well, as we we established earlier, I think I'm the only one of the four of us who was listening to Top 40 radio in the 80s and early 90s. So, yeah, I remember all these very well. Um, But yeah, I mean, like most of the songs on this album, I just, I don't have a whole lot of intelligent insight. They're just really good songs. And there's a lot more there's more to them than you notice just on the surface you have to pay attention to pick up on everything but there is a lot to dig into there it's just that you guys are a lot smarter about actually picking that apart than i am so i'm just gonna sit here and say these are really good songs go watch the videos
1: i always think i like this song less than i do it's not one of the songs i think about when you know somebody mentions the album or anything but But when you think of this song well when it was playing just now when we were listening to it I found myself doing a little chair dance not not a prominent one but you know grooving a little it's it's a very enjoyable song I I really like that uh curiously high sounding synth bass that really does sound like it's coming out of a video game that's that uh, that's that DX7 I was mentioning before uh and those the huge you know horn hits that come in that uh just kind of they seem to be there just solely to disrupt the song almost. It's like it's it was, the song was getting a little too smooth, so they had to punch those in there to, sh- to shake you up.
3: I yeah, like I, for- I, f- I forgot to mention this, but those those horn, uh, well, yeah, just all of the horns and orchestral hits, I, they, like my, my mental picture of the song, I, I imagine Janet cruising in a convertible with the top down on a clear sunny day, like punctuated by glorious bursts of sunlight. Like it almost feels like the a bunch of lens flares are like bursting around her or something. Hey, that's just my head, though. Hmm.
0: But what about the video, Amanda? Uh, sorry, right. I mean Miss Rogers. That's right. Well, in this installment of Miss Rogers' Video Corner, uh, this, is, it, this is a really good one. Uh, it's, I, it might be my favorite of the videos that came out of this album, uh, because it's kind of a precursor to the video for All Right, uh, which I'll talk about later, and it was done by the same director, Julian Temple. Um, He also directed the film Absolute Beginners with David Bowie and Shade, and apparently the video is similar to that film, but I haven't seen it. I think Ben has, so, you know, Ben, go watch this and compare them for me. Uh, But it's part of that subgenre of Janet Jackson videos called Janet dances around town flashing her beautiful smile at everybody. And that's that's a great subgenre. I really enjoy it. And the nifty thing about this one is it's done or at least to look like in one long continuous shot. There are a few cuts, but they're very subtle and you don't really notice them. Um, It was choreographed again by Paula Abdul and some parts were staged by the legendary Michael Kidd. So this is a really, really fun visual experience. I mean, if you've seen the video for all right, which is very popular and famous, um, it turn, it's like a giant black party. Basically the Janet gets the entire town dancing and the gimmick throughout the video is she keeps bumping into the same actor, but in different costumes. So it's, you know, like different incarnations of the same guy that she's thinking about. And then he fades away and then he pops up again later and as a different person. And it's just, it's, it's just a fun, subtle, Nice dance party. Go watch it. It's good. One thing I like about the video is there's a running gag about like this like
3: white store owner who keeps on like um, oh, yeah. complaining about the party that's going yeah. on. And then at the end, the cops show up, and he gets arrested. Yep. Because that's what would actually
2: happen.
0: Yeah, but. yeah. He's hollering at all them kids to get off his lawn, and then the cops come and haul him away for being a buzzkill.
2: And with that up, let's move on to track lucky number seven here, He Doesn't Know I'm Alive.
3: the second and final song on the album that was not a single. (laughs) Um, The song was a Jam Lewis production, but it was actually written by Spencer Bernard, a production associate of the duo. Uh, So that also explains why it has nothing to do with Jackson personally. And in terms of its music and lyrics, it actually could have fit in pretty easily on her first two albums. But for what it's worth, I I still really enjoy it. And it would have been one of the highlights of those albums for sure. Like definitely like the best one or two songs. The lyrics here are real like, you know, uh, Lisa Frank binder. Talk about boys on the phone with your heels kicked up on the bedspread. Your hair up at a diagonal bob. Which Um, I'm
0: sure you have a lot of experience with.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Which leads me to say that I think it's worth remembering that uh, Janet Jackson was still basically a kid when this album came out. Like 19 years old. It's especially noticeable when you read interviews with her from this period, like when nobody was expecting anything of her and the only people who were interviewing her at all were gossip magazines and things like, I don't know, Q and Smash Hits and stuff. Like They're really funny. She talks about things like giving up chewing gum, Throwing grapes and fruit out the window of her hotel room and uh, repeatedly going to see Captain EO all day long at Disneyland, just like, you know, walking back into the theater when the previous showing was was finished, which is adorable. What a good sister. Um, <laughs> and she also kept a swear jar in the studio and fine Jam and Lewis for cussing. So
2: read <laughs> you know all about it. in The pages of Corey magazine. Teen Beat.
3: <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty much all I have for this song. It's a fine pop song. It's just like, you know, it's the one song that sounds like it comes from a kid.
2: This is around the point, like, I don't know if it's this song specifically or just because a lot of this stuff isn't like my, my favorite genre of music, and I'm just kind of getting tired by this point, but like, this one doesn't make much of an impression on me. It's catchy. It's fine. It's a fun pop song. The lyrics are very cute because they're so obviously a teenager. I enjoy it while it's playing, but it doesn't really leave much of an impression on me. Uh, what's your take, Amanda? This song is adorable.
0: <laughs> it, it really is. stands out to me because this is the one song on the album where she sounds like a teenager. I mean, the rest of it, the rest of the song sounds very adult, like Nasty and What Have You Done For Me Lately. Are it, They're much more grown up and mature. This one, I mean, she is a kid talking about the boy she likes and it's just so freaking cute especially when her friend is trying to tell her just talk to him and she's like no way it's so just such a teenager thing and again very universal you were right about that rich i mean we've all done that and there's also in the verse where she talks about calling him there's that embarrassed little giggle which is just the cutest freaking thing in the world. <laughs> and, and She laughs a lot in her songs, and it always comes across very natural and very charming. So, you know, completely the opposite of Joni Mitchell and Big Yellow Taxi. <laughs> it, it works really well. It's a great touch, very signature Janet Jackson move, and it's just perfect in this song. I love it. It's so cute.
1: This song sounds like it's coming out of a little pink stereo in a teenage girl's bedroom. Yes, it does.
0: What a cute stereo! For yeah. the record, I had a little pink radio in my bedroom <laughs> when I was a teenager.
1: It sounds yeah, it sounds like it's coming out of one of those. It's not a, one of my favorites on the album, but I like how they tailored the sound of the song to match the lyrical content. They go together very well, and they continue killing it with those synth bass lines.
2: The synth bass lines definitely great. A lot of the song kind of reminds me of like. Any of those episodes of Saved by the Bell where, like, Kelly and Jesse and Lisa form, like, a girl band?
0: Hot Sunday!
2: Yes, and they're jumping around on trampolines or whatever, and then Jesse gets addicted to caffeine pills. Uh Uh-huh. But it kind of sounds like that kind of music.
3: Yeah, isn't that what the,
0: I'm so excited? It refers
3: to that because their band does Pointer Sisters
0: covers and stuff. Uh Yes. Yeah. Not exclusively, but that was a big component of their sound, yes.
2: But, like, if, if you remember, like, the way those music videos look on Saved by the Bell, which... I'm probably dating myself horribly here because I don't know how many people like, who are listening to this know it. I, de-
3: I definitely watch Saved by the Bell, Phil. Don't worry. Yeah. yeah,
0: they've all got the big like sweatbands and the leotards over yeah. the leggings, and they're jumping on the trampolines. Yes, I
2: remember this perfectly. But yeah, this song is the kind of music they would be jumping on trampolines to mm-hmm. in a Hot Sunday <laughs> video. But on that note, let's move on to Let's Wait a While, but not immediately. Okay, now
4: (laughs) there's something I want to tell you. There's something I think that you should know, it's not that I shouldn't. Let's take it slow When we get to know each other
1: Listen to the reverb on those finger snaps, though. Wow, yeah.
0: Well, now that you point it out.
3: I never thought about finger snaps as a thing that could have reverb. (laughs) No. (laughs) Fingers
1: are too small for that. It's like she's snapping her fingers in a stadium by herself. (laughs) And she could do that because she's Janet she can Jackson. Do
0: that. <laughs> it's true.
3: <laughs> so let's wait a while. This was the fifth single from the album. This hit number two on the Hot 100 behind some song I've never heard of, so I'm not going to mention it. <laughs> It also hit number two on the adult contemporary chart, and it topped the R&B slash hip-hop charts, presumably on the R&B side of things. Uh, This was also a pretty ginormous hit in the UK, actually, hitting number three, so I guess they loved it over there. Or maybe Janet Jackson was just becoming, like, enough of a superstar that, I don't know. Um, Anyway, so this song was a co-write with Jackson's best friend, Melanie Andrews, uh, who drew on her own experiences with her childhood boyfriend for the lyrics. And I fully understand if this is where my co-hosts decide to jump ship, because here we enter the quiet storm section of control. Um, I honestly wasn't very fond of this song for a while, but I have to break it to you guys. I've been listening to a lot of Mariah Carey lately, like a lot um, and it softened my defenses against this type of music. So uh, I kind of like it. But I, I, one thing is that one thing is in, that's interesting is that like Jam and Lewis were the pioneers of this type of slow jam, which makes it hilarious to me that it's about abstinence because sonically, like based on all of the songs that sound like this that I've heard, this sounds like the soundtrack to so much banging. Like Madonna's Take a Bow and songs like that.
2: This song is, in no sense of the word, a banger. Mm-hmm. Well, no, no, no. It's, it's, not, it's not a banger.
3: So this is where we're getting into a little bit of terminology problems. This song is absolutely not a banger. In fact, it's not about banging. But a lot of songs that sound like this song are about banging. You know what I mean? Anyway, the last thing I have to say Is that this song was a hit at the height of the AIDS crisis Uh, So while this uh, So while Jackson didn't intend it as such It it actually became something of an anthem For like abstinence and safe sex So that's pretty cool Um, And then finally This is the first song on the album that's been sampled By anybody I've heard of So I'm going to play it right now But I'm not going to tell you who it is yet Yo, the first time
4: I I met you It was love on sight No matter what I do, I can't forget that night in my mind, it was fun as one and tight. Something like a movie, but this is real life. No mistaking, oh, I was taken. Girl, you hit me harder than the music I be making. I exercise push-ups, how you feel, huh? What's your name, girl? How
0: can I get with you? All them free throws were getting boring, I guess.
3: Yeah, as, uh, <laughs> as Amanda alluded, that was Shaquille O'Neal, or Shaq, with his own uh, very creatively titled, Let's Wait a While.
1: <laughs> a true artist that shack
0: missed his calling with that basketball nonsense
2: rich kind of called it like you said like the co-hosts are gonna jump ship i kind of do here because like i'm not like mr 80s dance pop but like this album kind of won me over on a lot of it just because much of it's really good but like i really just generally don't like this kind of quiet storm ballad And this was not the one that won me over. Like, it's. I don't want to slam it because it's not like. It's just not a style of music I particularly care for. But it really doesn't, you know, do much for me. I do appreciate the moment at the end of the song when Janet Jackson whispers that she promises that she's worth the wait. (laughs)
3: <laughs> and uh, she fulfills that promise on future albums, actually. I forgot to mention this, but there's a sequel song to this one on the next one, Rhythm Nation. What? Uh, it's called Someday Is Tonight, and it's basically like, okay, we're not going to wait a while anymore. It's time to screw.
1: Quiet Storm, for me, is not a particularly favorite genre. But it's, it's not like this song is, you know, it's not unpleasant at all no it's (laughs) fine you know it's not a a song that like if it if it came on I would just be like oh this song it just it just kind of sounds like something I'd hear at the orthodontist
2: (laughs) yeah right but but it's hard to slam it it's just I don't particularly like it but it's not like it's bad it's just i'm sure if you like this genre you probably like it a lot more than me it's probably a good example of it
0: i don't know if it's a particularly (laughs) good example of it honestly i don't know this is the one single from this album that i don't remember ever hearing on the radio and that's probably because it's really boring uh it's quiet but i don't hear any storm it's just quiet and dull um But there were, I do remember a few of these abstinence slash safe sex songs on the radio in the 80s and 90s, uh, probably as a result of the emergence of AIDS. And while I appreciate the effort, they haven't aged well. But the song does have a video. Yes, it does. It does. And the video is also pretty boring slash a little aggravating (laughs) because it starts with Janet sitting on the roof of a building next to a guy who looks, you know, pretty irritated. And she says, please try and understand. And then we flash back to the beginning of their date, which starts off well, but she gets increasingly uncomfortable until he makes a move on her and she flees to the roof. And he's, he's kind of a jerk about it, but it could be worse. But what's noteworthy about both the video and the song is that at no point does she apologize for her position. I do appreciate that a lot. She doesn't get defensive. She just lays it out. This is how I feel. You're going to have to deal with that.
2: All right. So, with this next track, we have reached the end of the album almost too soon. It's funny how time flies when you're having fun.
4: Yeah
3: Funny how time flies, parentheses when you're having fun. Uh, final track on the album, seventh. And final single from the album, but only Just Barely. It was released exclusively as a physical single in the UK and Australia, and as an airplay-only single in the US, which means it was ineligible for the Hot 100, according to the rules at the time. But, uh, Quiet Storm again, it has apparently become a Quiet Storm staple. Like, I've never heard this on the radio, but honestly, I don't listen to a lot of Quiet Storm stations, so for all I know, this could be, like, a mega hit. Um, so this didn't grab me for a while, but I really, really like this song. Like, um, I enjoy how the title of the song is sort of a mantra like delivered in short pulses and uh, and the verses are in kind of a weird time signature like Amanda you said it's uh, it
0: starts in four four and then switches to six eight right or um, that's what it sounds like to me possibly with a bar of two four in between but I'm not an expert that's just that was my best guess.
3: Either way, as far as I can tell, I I don't expect uh, weird time signatures in my Quiet Storm ballads. So uh, that kind of took me by surprise. And then uh, there are a couple samples from this one, actually. And the weird thing about it is that it was sampled twice in the same year for two separate soundtrack cuts. Uh, So the first one was uh, Renee by the Lost Boys from the soundtrack to Don't Be a Menace to South Central while Drinking Your Juice in the Hood. And here's that right here. We live by, day by day I wonder why my shorty had to
4: die
0: win, win, huh. no Is that a sample or is it an interpolation?
3: It's an interpolation. Ah
0: See, you've taught me.
3: And the second one was Campelo's "Coolie High" from the movie "The Great White Hype." So apparently funny how time flies when you're
2: having fun was a really popular song
1: among like MCs
3: and DJs in 1996 specifically. But uh, I like both those songs and I like how they like sample different elements from it. Like uh, man, I still love hip hop. That hasn't changed.
2: For me on this one, basically see comments from previous song. It's a better song than Let's Wait a While. It's more interesting. It has a more interesting, you know, rhythm. It has, you know, a better melody, I think. But aside from that, it's you know, I feel about the same way just I find it a little more interesting. How about you, Amanda?
0: I like this one a lot. This is where, you know, it's quiet, but I can also hear the storm. Uh, It's a lot more interesting than it seems on the surface. And it's got a great beat. Like, here's that nasty groove I was looking for earlier. And what's (laughs) the other notable thing? By the end of the song, I'm pretty sure Janet's done waiting. Those vocal effects are pretty explicit. So that didn't take long. (laughs) So this was a, technically a single but I couldn't find an official video for it so I got nothing. No, it was like kind of a promotional single, like technically a single but not it didn't have
3: all the accoutrements that you usually get with singles.
1: Yeah. I do agree that it's it's better than Let's Wait a While, but it, it's it's such a wisp of a thing. It's almost barely there. Yeah. But I don't mean that necessarily in a negative way. There's there's an intriguing uh, aspect of that. I thought it might be amusing to bring up that our uh, Earlier uh, in our Slack channel, a bunch of us were ranking the various songs on Michael Jackson's Thriller, and uh, The Closer, The Lady in My Life, ended up uh, at the bottom where it probably belongs. But I do think it's interesting that a bunch of you were talking about The Lady in My Life and Funny How Time Flies as if they weren't, in fact, the same song.
3: I think this song is far better than The Lady in My Life. In fact, I have a clip of The Lady in My Life ready to demonstrate what an ass song it is,
2: even
0: though it's on Thriller. And I'm positive I've heard it. I have no idea how it goes.
2: Nobody does. It's only rumored to exist. Oh, that
4: one.
2: Yeah, oh, that
0: one. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's not good. But I can hear the similarities for sure
4: love you so I promise you tonight that you will love
3: Yeah, so, so personally, I like Funny How Time Flies way more than the lady in my life. And honestly, like, uh, I wanted to come to my most controversial statement of the podcast and one that I believe in strongly. Control better than Thriller.
2: Yeah. Okay. I, I don't disagree. Like, I, um, I think the ballads on this album, like, I don't love the ballads on this record, but I think they're better than the ballads on Thriller because I don't like any of the ballads on Thriller. And the best songs on this, like Control, What Have You Done For Me Lately, and especially Nasty, are at least as good as anything on Thriller. Like, I think Thriller is a somewhat overrated album. It's good, but it's somewhat overrated. Whereas, like, this album, like, really kind of surprised me, like, you know, by how much I liked it. I would imagine that in the future, like, I will probably listen to this album more times than I listen to Thriller in the future.
3: I don't want to be contrarian. I hate being pointlessly contrarian. I love Thriller. I grew up with Thriller. But my point is that, like, Thriller has become part of the canon, and you honestly never hear that about Control, and it's part of the whole just, like, complete erasing of Janet Jackson's legacy. Like, you never—you'll see it come up in, like, you know, best albums of the 80s list, but it just doesn't have, like, the same, like, um, reputation that Thriller has.
1: It's never gotten, like, a deluxe reissue or anything like Mm -hmm. that. It's Mm just— no.
3: And I think it's truly worth it. I think that this is a wonderful, like, truly excellent album. Like, honestly, like, this album is why I love doing this podcast. Like, as usual, I went in wanting to recommend a bunch of fun pop songs to listeners, but there is just so much history and depth to every track here. And just the whole story is very inspiring. Like, this ragtag group of rejects from the Jackson family and the time, like, discovering their latent chemistry, creating a mega-hit album that nobody saw coming, and then ultimately, like, temporarily but ultimately changing the face of popular music like if you think about it like michael jackson's dangerous and prince's diamonds and pearls and everything with the new power generation both of them are basically copying the janet jackson jam and lewis sound like when i left you i was but a learner but now they are the master i think it's amazing
1: and new jack swing is not uh, a style that's known for having aged particularly well
3: no, but I mean, it's reached the point in the in the nostalgia cycle where people are starting to love it again. Like there's that Bruno Mars song with Cardi B, uh, well, true. But yeah. it's like
1: you, you know, you don't hear uh Belle Biv DeVoe's Poison and think, "Wow, what a timeless song." But uh, Oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but the the songs on here are so uh smartly arranged that it's uh it's held up a lot better than a lot of uh a lot of other examples of that genre. I, I didn't come up with a, a more interesting ending for that sentence, but my statement stands.
2: Yeah, this album's held up quite well. Like I said earlier, like, I came into it completely cold and didn't know much about it. I didn't even really know what it was going to sound like, and I ended up enjoying it quite a bit, aside from, like, you know, the Quiet Storm songs, which, I'm again, just not my thing. But, yeah, I enjoyed this album thoroughly. I've quite enjoyed, like, delving into it the last week or so, getting ready for this podcast. I will probably check out some other Janet Jackson albums.
0: It's a great album. I don't know why I let Janet fall out of my life. Um, Probably just because she fell out of everybody's lives. She was shoved out of everybody's lives because of Justin freaking Timberlake, who's, I'm sorry, I just, he's always struck me as a major tool. I don't like him at all, but I'm not going to let her fall out again. Um, It was really fun for me to listen to this because as you guys know, I'm a big Madonna fan and A lot of this music is very much in the same vein as, say, True Blue, which, as you guys know, I absolutely adore. And even, like, I was thinking on Let's Wait a While, I forgot to mention this earlier, sounds to me a lot like Crazy for You, only not quite as good. So that has been, it's been so much fun for me to revisit and rediscover this, and I'm really, really grateful, Rich, that you brought this album up, because I'm I'm keeping it now. I'm not going to let it fall away again. Me neither.
2: So I said earlier, you know, I will probably be checking out more Janet Jackson because this album has intrigued me. Where would you recommend I go for further listening, Rich?
3: Well, you should just go in order, honestly. This is my favorite Janet Jackson album, but it launched a creative and commercial streak that lasted up until the Super Bowl um, and just slightly thereafter. Obviously, the one to go next is the follow-up album, Rhythm Nation, 1814. Um, it's not one of my personal favorites by her, but uh, Amanda, you wanted to stump for it.
0: Rhythm Nation, it rules Uh, I think it's even better than this album. It's similar to this. It's the same kind of sound, but it's tightened up considerably. Also, her voice has noticeably matured, which really helps a lot. They dealt with the lack of bass. There is plenty of bass on that album, which I really, really love. I require a lot of bass in my music. And what's also really cool is the whole world agrees with me. This is the only album Rhythm Nation is in the history of the Billboard Hot 100 to have seven singles hit the top five the only album to have hits on the charts in three separate calendar years, 1989, 90 and 91. And besides all that, I defy anyone to find me a song catchier than the title track on Rhythm Nation, not to mention the videos that came out of that. This was an era when music videos were extremely important, uh, much more so than they are now. And the ones off of this album were just, I mean, they set the bar so high for everybody else. Like All Right especially was the best thing on MTV in 1989. So if you do nothing else after you listen to this episode, whether you get any of Janet Jackson's actual albums or not, go watch her music videos. They are all terrific. Yeah, you should definitely
3: watch the video for All Right. It's a really great, like, um, well, it's another one of those, like, Janet walks around and, like, brightens everyone's day on the street Yeah, videos. But it has, like, appearances by Cab Calloway and Sid Charisse.
0: Yes. And Janet is strolling around town in an impeccably tailored zoot suit, of all things, and perfect red lipstick. And no one in history has ever looked cooler than that. Spinning a bagel on her finger. Yes. <laughs> like, she's having a true New York day. It's true. And then she stops and dances with Sid Charisse outside of a dress shop. And they're all, they're on their way to a Cab Calloway show.
3: Yeah. It's, it's great. I do really like the rhythm nation album. It's not one of my personal favorites. The reason is one, it's super duper long and doesn't really justify the length. And two, it's a, one thing I love about control is the, like I said earlier, is the way it sort of like sits at the border between analog and digital. At this point, By 1989, everything was fully digital and a lot of the rough edges had been sanded off. So, like, everything is very clean, like, very sparkly. And it loses a little bit of the charm from control for me. But every Janet Jackson's uh, fans should have Rhythm Nation it is like her
0: crowning achievement as far as like culture is concerned and I do just want to point out briefly before we started this episode we listened to Love Will Never Do Without You just to warm up and it has been running through my head this entire time while we listened to all these other songs it did not knock Love Will Never Do Without You out of my head
4: Office.
3: her other albums are concerned. Um, my second favorite album by her is The Velvet Rope from 1997, which is really like moody, but not quite downbeat. It has like this really like super crisp R&B production that I like. But my favorite song on the album is this song called Empty, uh, which is notable not only for being a late 90s song that gets the internet right on a psychological level, really rare, but it also has a backing track that sounds straight off of Homogenic by Bjork. Yeah. When I close my
4: eyes I can see your face When I lick my lips,
1: and this is Jam and Lewis. That beat is really cool. That's, I'm definitely hearing the Bjork comparison there. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And that's still a Jam and Lewis production. Like they're just really versatile. So uh, all for you from 2001 is also consistently high energy and just a delight to listen to. There's one particularly weird track called "Son of a Gun" that both quotes or interpolates "You're So Vain" by Carly Simon and features a spoken word appearance by Simon herself, and it somehow works. <laughs>
0: like that a lot yeah it's cool right yeah
3: yeah when i read about that song i was expecting to hate it but like she really does a good job with that hook and then finally don't call it a comeback Uh, she has a new single and an as yet untitled new album or ep i can't remember the song is pretty solid though you have to have a stomach for modern super precise production techniques and daddy yankee
0: admit that I
3: don't know what Daddy Yankee is. Oh, uh, he's, the, um, uh, he's the reggaeton rapper on Despacito, the big like, summer hit oh, from last year. I yeah, I know that song. I liked
0: that
2: yeah.
3: song. Mm-hmm. I
2: do not know that song. I've heard people talk about it, but I don't think I've heard it because I am terminally out of touch. Mm-hmm.
3: It's pretty good. Um, anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's all I have. Like, uh, You should all go listen to lots and lots of Janet Jackson because that's what I've been doing for the last couple of months. And it's been delightful.
2: All right, that finishes up this week on Discord and Rhyme. In two weeks, we'll be back with our your friends and mine, Dan Watkins, who will be making his hosting debut talking about Germ-Free Adolescence by X-Ray Specs. Our
3: first punk rock album. Yeah! Yeah, and and it's got saxophone on it, too.
2: I'm not on that episode, but it is a good album and will be a good episode, I am sure.
3: Yeah, so why don't you take us out, Phil?
2: All right. So thank you again for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy or stream Control and other albums by Janet Jackson at all of the usual retailers, including your local Sam Goody. Woo! But if you buy it through the Amazon affiliate link on our website, discordpod.com, you'll both get a great album and support our podcast. You can also support us directly via our Patreon at patreon.com discordpod. We're all on social media. You can follow Discord and Rhyme on Twitter at discordpod. Follow Rich at zonetrope. Follow Amanda at Magnetic 67 Follow me at P.A. Maddox. But you can't follow Mike because he isn't on Twitter due to there being too many nasty boys. We love hearing from non-nasty boys on Twitter, though, so please add us and tell us what you think. You can also follow our page on Facebook for news and updates. We also have a Facebook group if you want to geek out about music with most of us directly, again, except for Mike. If you have a second, please rate us on iTunes, or better yet, write us a review. It actively helps new listeners find us. Special thanks to Mike DeFabio, the other leading brand, for his peerless production skills. See you next album, and be ever wonderful.
1: And be never nasty.